0: Hello and welcome to the latest of the Read All About It Extra podcast with me, Paul Cuddy, and Chris Dolan. And once again, we've chosen a different subject. We choose five of our favourite books on this specific subject and then we chat about them. And this week's subject is books about books. And Chris, I have to be honest, I'm a, I'm a sucker for books about books. If I go into a bookshop and I just see something that's got book in the title, I'm, I'm already halfway there to
1: buying it. That's funny because I'm almost the opposite. I've got, I've got a slight fear about writers writing about writing. Because I think it was quite kind of nasal, uh, navel-gazing, so I was a bit worried about it. When we first decided on this topic, I don't. Hmm, first of all, I find a wee bit hard to remember what books. And it feels to me that I've read millions of books about books, or about writing books or whatever. But I couldn't actually think of any at first, and I was also worried the ones I would think about, I wouldn't like. But actually, once you begin to go a look at your bookshelves and try and remember other books, i oh, no, 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 there's a lot really good books. So I really enjoyed it. Uh, one of the nice things about doing this series is just trying to remember books that you'd forgotten about, and books have been lying in the back of your bookshelf for years, stuff like that, so it's been good fun just to remind uh, yourself. The other
0: thing I think is, for much the same reason, I've kind of then gone through my bookshelves and picking out books and thinking, I've actually read more books than I realise.
1: <laughs> exactly, it makes you feel quite good about yourself. Although yes. at the same time, you also think of so many books which you haven't read. Exactly. Really? And also, uh, there's so many books I have read and completely forgotten about <laughs> well, as well. that's true. In fact, there's something I was reading, sort of, a Spanish book. Partly during the, the lockdown, uh, me and, and my wife I could decide decided we're going to try and read uh, books in Spanish, and she's reading in French as well, which I can't do. Just, just a kind of thing to try and keep the Spanish up. But so I was reading a book, um, which I was sure I'd read. When I started reading, I thought, i would never read this book. No, I was convinced I'd read it. And it wasn't until I got to about page 150, it's quite a short book, towards the end, I suddenly remembered it. Oh God, I have read it. So it's amazing. <laughs> and I loved it. I loved it the first time round. I loved it the second time round. But for 150 pages, I didn't recognise it. I the three quarters of the book. So it's amazing how things do kind of stay. At the flavour of it stayed in my head, but none of the facts of it, none of the actual story until towards the end that I remember. Well, we, as I said, uh,
0: what we'll do is we just choose five of, of our favourite books. And, and the specific topic
1: is books about books this time. So your first choice it's a Graham Greene novel. Yeah, uh, and, and I chose this for a couple of reasons, actually. Um, the book's called Monsignor Quixote. So throughout all these uh, conversations, I think Don Quixote, Don Quixote has come up in one guise or another, and funny books and all sorts of favourite books and all of that um, has come up time and time again. So I thought that's an interesting one. But here's another. Uh, here's a book about a book, and the book is about Monsignor. It was about Don Quixote. The other reason I chose it, Paul, is because I think Green speaks to people like us from our background. Green was both a Catholic and and, and a progressive-minded kind of a lefty liberal. Uh, so the kind of clashing between those two things quite often, I just recognise all that. So I've always loved Green uh, for, for all those reasons, I think. Uh, I now know she told me earlier, you haven't read this book. I think you would love this book. It's a joke on the, the original book. It's uh, it's actually set in the 1960s, published in the 1960s too, I think. As a guy, a small town priest called Father Quixit Quixit hardly exists. I don't even exist at all as a name, really. Um, so it's obviously just a kind of a joke. So a small town priest uh, in El Toboso, which is of course from Don Quixote, uh, the parish priest for, a, for a, a whole number of comedic reasons has to go on a on a, a road holiday. The bishop sends him away uh, for a month. He doesn't want to go alone, so he asks his old uh, sparring partner, the ex-communist mayor of the town, to go with him. So it's a road journey through Spain towards Madrid with uh, uh, two old grumpy men uh, who, who like, both like drinking wine far too much, and one's a communist and one's a Catholic, and they argue and bicker their way across Spain. It's hilarious. And of course, the two of them get far more in common than at first scene, yeah? So they do all sorts of things. They're going to bring this old banger of a car, which of course they call Rosinante, like Don quixote's horse, uh, and there's lots of slapstick stuff of them and getting drunk and mad escapades that kind of echo the original Don Quixote um, escapades. So, you know, the the evil knight, um, what's it called in the original book? Um, the, the knight of the fight, what's it called again? The knight of the fight man is kind of General Franco. But they, they have these kind of philosophical conversations as they go along. And actually, you know, they, 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 they kind of compare each other's belief systems. So, you know, they both realize that communism, despite all its great hopes and ambitions, actually created Stalin and that Christianity in Spain created the Inquisition, and to some extent General Franco. So they have these kind of philosophical conversations as they're getting drunk and get into all sorts of mad escapades across Spain. Brilliant book, very funny, one of Graham Greene's more light-hearted books, basically. Um, yeah, a bit of an escapade. It's, it's a great book, you'd love it. It's funny, when you when you sent me
0: the list, and actually, I thought at first... When you put me Senior Quixit, I thought, you no, know, he obviously meant Don Quixote, and I'm thinking you, you've talked about this book so often. I thought, why have you changed the, the title? So I actually had,
1: I had never even uh, well, of course, heard of the you could used it. In fact, the first thing you said, "Books about books," is the classic book about the books. And I was to say that Don Quixote is the first novel of all time. It's arguable, but I think it probably is the first kind of novel. And it's about a man who's obsessed with books and yeah. some particular books that are named to go along. So here, Graham Green, is a book about a book. About a book. Yeah. <laughs> so I thought that was a good
0: place to start Well, it's interesting as well that there was, a, I'm sure it was last year, Salman Rushdie brought out a novel. I'm not sure of the pronunciation, Quixote. It's basically inspired by uh, Cervantes' novel. And it's the story of, a. I think it's an Indian-American man who travels across America in pursuit of a celebrity TV host with whom he's become obsessed. So he's kind of just taken, I think, that story and obviously put his own modern-day twist on it. You know, I think it was nominated for the Booker Prize as well.
1: It's It's, it's been done so often. And uh, we, we went to see the film. Terry Gilliam's uh, film was called The Man Who Would Be Quixote or something. Uh, so I think it's, it's done so often. It's such a great book, the Quixote. And it's such a thing you can just, you know, it's a journey. It's a battle. Um, and it's always based on people's dreams and other books they've read. I think that daily always works. Yeah, I've heard, I've heard of the Rushdie. I've never read it yet. Rushty's one of these writers. Some of his books I love and others I just cannot read. So I'm not sure of that one yet. But you love this one. This one, obviously, is it's a bit of a caper, as the original Quixote is, a bit of a caper, but like the a Quixote, a lot of serious stuff underneath it. given the fact that after you talked to me about the original,
0: and I love that, then certainly I'm going to investigate that one further. My first book in the book about books choice is Fahrenheit 451 by Ray Bradbury. And I've read this book in a number of occasions. I've also seen the the original film and then HBO did an adaptation last year which was very, very good. And you know, for anybody who doesn't know, it's a dystopian novel, it's set in America where books are outlawed and the firemen in this particular America they seek out and then burn books and the, the title Farm Height four five one comes from apparently it's the temperature at which book paper catches fire and burns. And then one of the firemen who's, I think it's Montag, is the main character and becomes disillusioned with his job in burning books and starts to become intrigued and interested in books. And it's all about, I think Ray Bradbury wrote it at the height of the, you know, McCarthyism in the early 50s America, which, you know, the the communist witch hunts and that kind of prescribed text. And I suppose every kind of dictatorship, you know, one of the first things they do is, is they burn books remember at the time reading it, I thought it was a great book. And, I, and I've loved the adaptations as well. I say the, the one that came out last year brought it right up to date, but it was a really brilliant adaptation of the book.
1: I've heard that. I haven't seen it yet. Uh, I love that book as well. Uh, I haven't read it for a long, long time. Uh, I've seen the the earlier. I've seen a couple of adaptations, I think, of uh, Fahrenheit. But I've heard that new one's very, very good. Uh, it's one, actually, we kind, of, we kind of have study in adaptation. In the, the course I'd on MATV. we do a lot of Bradbury because he is such a brilliant uh, writer. And one who's very good at kind of talking about one thing but really means something else. So that whole McCarthy thing—it's uh, just a brilliant way of dealing with it all. But yeah, just I just remember that being as I'm looking at kind of strange and wonderful and really scary. He's, he's he's a fantastic writer. I just always
0: remember at the time. I must have read that book probably when I was back a teenager. I'm sure that was the first time I read it. And I just even just that you know finding out that the the title comes from the temperature at which book paper catches fire and burns that just i remember being at the time gobsmacked think, what a brilliant title for a book and perfect for obviously what he's talking about as well and i just love that idea of obviously the kind of the resistance the rebellion to this dystopian state censorship of books is you know people they realize that books are getting destroyed but basically someday i think each person has to kind of memorize a book and they become like a living kind of the living embodiment of the book so if you're Say, for example, you were given Don Quixote, then that was
1: the book you had to memorise, so then the book carries on with you. It is a fantastic idea. It really is a people kind of consume books in a way. The whole idea, you have to to remember your own history, you have to remember because it's all going to try and be wiped out. Again, Bradby does it in so many different things that he writes. He's just so good at that really, really kind of quite scary dystopia, which in this day and age, you think, it feels every bit as possible now, maybe more possible than it even did uh, back in the 50s it's just got this wonderful imagination and a brilliant way of bringing kind of literature and books to relate to ordinary life. Yeah, and I've I've
0: spoken about this before. There's in America they they have a banned books week every year in America, and it's basically a celebration of literature and books that have been either banned or people have attempted to ban them in the United States. So I think if books are put up for teaching in, in schools or Sometimes even if libraries stop books, then sometimes individuals or organisations challenge that. Sometimes go to court because they, they don't like the book or the themes in the book, and which I just I think is a, just a, a point of principle is just is absolutely wrong. So you, you know because there's not there's not that many steps from that point where you would challenge you know the right of a book to be taught to <laughs> setting fire to it.
1: I, I can kind of happen the other way around as well. Maybe we kind of always associate, and I think generally speaking quite rightly that idea of banning with kind of the right people who don't want, you know, who want to keep a a captain society and control it and all of that. But that whole thing is going around universities just now, uh, no platforming. The idea that, you know, right-wing thinkers shouldn't be given a platform, universities shouldn't be allowed to speak, and that terrifies me too. And I think, well, you know, honestly, that's that's not what we stood for and that's not what we fought for, you know, beat them at their own words, argue with them, uh, whatever, but the, the minute you start banning people, I think the more power you give them. So I really think that, uh, yeah, the whole idea of man and books is is such a, a toxic one, uh, and, and Bradbury deals with it brilliantly. We're on to your
0: second book choice, and that is a book by Jean Reese, and that's Wide
1: Sargasso Sea. Wide well, Sargasso Sea is uh, an, an, an extraordinary book, actually. Have you, have you read this Some Paul? No? No, and it's funny because in one of the previous
0: podcasts, the journalist Danny Garavelli picked it as one of, I think, our important books in our formative years. But I recently did a, a podcast interview with a guy called uh, Neil White, who's coming up in the book, He Couldn't Be Paid to read Again. <laughs> what was that one? But I think it was, to be fair to him, it wasn't so much that he didn't enjoy the book, it's because he had to study it at university, and, and I think that, that took away his enjoyment
1: of the book. But I haven't read it myself I mean, having said that, I, you know, I can, I, can, I can see where he's coming from. And it is quite a tough read in a number of ways. I think that if you don't know much about it, you just pick it up and it's, it's kind of a slightly odd book. And, and it's certainly not fun. It really isn't fun at all. It's a, it's a furious book. It really is. I and mean, I think that's what, you know, if you like it at all, that's what you like and it's a fury of it. So basically, it's a response to it. It's an answer to Charlotte Bronte's Jane Eyre. If you remember the story of Jane Eyre, Mr. Rochester, who really fancies Jane and wants to marry her, but he can't because he's already married to a madwoman called Bertha, who he locks up in a tower in, in the upstairs of the big house somewhere in Yorkshire, the north of England. What uh, Jean Rees does is she takes her story and she takes it from Bertha's point of view. What we know from Jane Eyre uh, is that uh, Mrs. Rochester, the first Mrs. Rochester, was from a Caribbean background. She was Jamaicanist, I remember, and from a very, very rich family. Uh, and that's the reason why Rochester married her, really, for the dowry. Uh, she was supposed to be very, very beautiful. Uh, but you can really imagine that for the dowry. And that's why he's now rich. He married into money. And it's her money that, uh, that he's got. And the Jane Eyre ones, too. He, he's not told until after he's married her. that uh, apparently madness runs in the family. And true sure enough, uh, Mrs. Rochester, Bertha goes, he tells us, we, we firstly never see her until towards the end of Jane he tells us that uh, she, she's mad and dangerous and um, horrific in all sorts of ways and a danger to herself. And that's why he has to keep her locked up. He keeps her locked up and, and then we go touring across the world and falling in love with other people. So it's not as if he's feeling that sorry for her. So what uh, Reese does in White Zagasso Sea is she takes it from her point of view. She goes right back into the original Bertha's uh, story and she calls it Antoinette. Uh, she changes that a number of things about it, uh, but is it still recognisably the same woman. And you get her a really horrific story, you know, so it's that classic thing that she's supposed to be in Jane Eyre, a creole of mixed race. And you already know what's going to happen there, is that uh, you know, she's basically been taken by uh, a white plantocrat uh, who's essentially raped her and married her because she's very beautiful. This happened a couple of things in her life. She has a terrible life. And really what the book, I think, is it's not just about how hard Antoinette Stroll life is, it's about how... Slavery and, and uh, colonialism poisons everything it touches. So there's no kind of recovering from 200 years of slavery. Uh, there's no recovering from the kind of background that uh, Mrs. Uh, Rochester comes from. So what in fact she's doing is rebelling against the entire system. And of course, Rochester doesn't see that. And to a large extent, nor does Jane Eyre. Um, they really don't see that. Um, and it's kind of like it took a hundred years later uh, when we rewrites the story to see slavery and colonialism in some kind of perspective, yeah? and you can then begin to understand Mrs. Rochester better. So it's, it's, a, it's a pretty brutal book. It really is. Reese herself grew up in Dominica. She knew a lot about the horrors of slavery and its legacy. So it's uh, it's, it's just rewrites that entire book and makes you rethink entirely the Woman in the tower in, in, uh, in Jane Eyre. When I read it, and then immediately re-read Jane, Jane Eyre. And it's amazing how that book reads completely differently once you've read Whites Sea. Because I was wondering, if could you read it without having read Jane Eyre first? I think so. I think it makes it a lot more interesting and gives you a reason why it's been written at all. But yeah, no, it works. It really does. It works. I mean, as I say, it's a furious, violent and, and quite difficult book. I mean, it's not linguistically difficult, and I think. It's just um, it's a tough, tough story. It really is, you know? You know, it doesn't, it doesn't flinch at any point at all. right from the very start, it doesn't flinch. So, yeah, absolutely, it would stand by itself. It will stand by itself. But it becomes all the more amazing uh, once you know what, what she's doing and looking at a whole different set of principles and ideas from a, a century earlier. What certainly makes it different, as I said there, Jane Eyre changes fundamentally. You will never read Jane Eyre the same way again. You can't even see an adaptation of her. I what's was, was an adaptation last year at one point of Jane Eyre. And once you've read... White or, or Sea. I mean, honestly, you can't, you, 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 you just can't accept the original story in its own way. You see it in a completely different way. It's interesting,
0: I think, as well. I'm not sure if it's still a set text when people are either studying English at, at school or at university, but it's certainly the people who I've spoke to who have mentioned it either positive or negatively. It has been, I think, through their studies. So it's obviously a text, and perhaps because it is relating to that earlier classic, Jane Eyre, that obviously lecturers or teachers
1: like teaching about it because of the themes involved in it yeah i mean i've, I've never studied it i did do english university about 500 years ago at least of course i did it wasn't on it but yeah i can see why it would be you know because it is a it is quite a, a an interesting bookender you know but i'm not sure when jane eyre was written 1850 somewhere there I should know charlotte Ponson's dates better i don't but i'm going to guess it's about 100 years of difference roughly between the two books so but about the same person or about the same people uh but taken from mentality narrative perspective one written from an English country perspective in the 19th century or from a a Dominican woman's uh, perspective in the 20th century. And so you take the same story and how completely different we are with still having a lot of the same facts. Well, my second book uh,
0: that I've chosen is a book called Mr Penumbra's 24-Hour Bookshop by Robin Sloan. And when I said at the start how if I see a book title that's got the word book in it, I generally i'm just a sucker for these things but this book is it's a really great book because at the heart of it, it really goes into this whole idea of you know traditional books the physical product that we've that we know and love and have grown up with and the digitalization of books and ebooks and, and that sort of thing and what's better and you know what's the future for both and and it basically it's a kind of mystery story the, the guy who wrote it he i think he actually worked for twitter at a, At one point, but his character, I think, loses his job at Google in the kind of Silicon Valley and then ends up getting a a job just to make it ends meet in Mr Penumbra's 24-hour bookstore, but very quickly finds it's quite a strange bookstore because there's not that many books and when people come in, they just seem to want these obscure tomes that are hidden away in the back shelves. And he with the help of some friends, starts to investigate what's what's the story behind Mr Penumbra's 24 hour bookstore and it is all to do with, you know, this whole idea of what are books, you know, how do we consume them to people who like physical books? Is that just a product that's dying out or should we embrace new technology and, uh, but done in a kind of way of this kind of this mystery thriller? It's a really entertaining book. It's quite quite funny as well but also, I think, like a lot of these books, it does, it does make you think because... Although I do read books occasionally on Kindle, I'm very much it's the physical product for me because it's it's more than just the words within it. And and this book, that's what that kind of tackles and who's right and who's wrong and what's the future going to be.
1: And all these discussions we've had, you've, you've introduced a whole number of books I haven't read. This is, I think is one of the first, anyway. not the first. I've never even heard of. So I don't I don't no know the book at all. Uh, but but you've uh, you've, you've got an interest going. I mean, that idea of what you know, what makes a book a book. Uh, and to some extent, actually, all these chats that we've had, that's been part of it, you know, could, could you include a poem, you know? Uh, if, you're, if you've only, you know, so much online content now. If I look at my, my kids and how much online content they're taking, how much they actually read, but not in the way that you and I would read. That yeah, that the whole idea of reading has always been constantly changing, has not it, from parchment days through to the printing press through to online stuff and all that it just seems to be changing endlessly. So it's a really interesting uh, area to, to write about. Yeah, and I think, because I think for me, I know I'll always
0: prefer actual books. I don't mind Kindles, and I say I've taken them particularly on holiday, partly because of the luggage allowance, but I always feel, and I think what's interesting is that, and I think we might have spoken about this in a previous podcast at the time when there seemed to be a, a kind of increase in e-books, so whether it was people reading on their iPad or on their Kindle, and it was it was heralding the demise of the physical book. But actually, it's, it's had the opposite effect, that, there was a kind of plateau of of ebook readership but what it did is it encouraged people to read again in much the same ways i think that's what audiobooks are doing now because people are just consuming their literature in different formats but actually ultimately pushes them back to the physical product because that's ultimately what it is is the book and then you know people still want something in their hand although their lifestyle might it might suit them to listen to a book or it might suit them just to have like a thousand books in the palm of their hand but there's nothing that beats, you know, it's one of the, it's probably one of the greatest inventions ever just in terms of a, a product that has stood the test of time and is still just, just as, a, as something to hold in your hand can be just a thing of beauty.
1: I, I wonder if it's going to go through a bit more of that kind of uh, uh, regeneration as well, but not sadly for you and I both who have books out there and want to sell them. Uh, all the bookshops have been shut and, and this idea my publisher tells me that everybody's reading far more books actually is not really showing itself in terms of sales, at least not yet. But I think that the very fact that we're all spending so much time now on social media, like what we are doing just now, Paul, and you know, I've to my family, you know, because my kids don't live in Glasgow, so I'm, when I'm working I'm on screen when I'm relaxing with friends and family, I'm on screen. But I really don't, there's a book I want to read, and uh, it's a Spanish book, and I can't I can't get it here. Uh, and I will read it on, on uh, my Kindle, but I, I really don't want to. I've been on screens all day long. I don't want to go to bed at night time without a real book. And the audiobook too. I think the audiobook is for kinda of busy lifestyles, isn't it? It's for it's for uh, double tasking, it's when you're driving um, or doing the ironing or making the tea. But now that a lot of people have more time in their hands again, the actual book itself. So I'm kinda of hoping that one of the, the spin offs from uh, from the whole COVID horror will be more people buying books. Actual You're right, I mean maybe it's just our age group, but I find that my kids do that by and large they'd much rather have that physical object in their hands
0: rather than an off the machine. We're on to book uh, number three in your book choices, and you have gone for Aunt Julia and the Scriptwriter* by Mario Vargas Lossa. Lossa,
1: yeah. A slight cheat here in that uh, it's a book about writing and not specifically about books, so you may, you may, you may uh, throw this one out. Um, but I had to get in somewhere in our discussions because it's just one of my favourite books now. I haven't managed to get in it, get it anywhere else. Uh, there's,
0: lot, no, there's no rules, to be fair, so you're not breaking in <laughs> Okay, i are not
1: getting chopped out of the club. Uh, I love Mario Vargas Llosa, uh, I, think, I think he's a fantastic writer, uh, everything he's ever done has been published in English and has been very successful in English. He's a Peruvian writer, he's politically appalling. Uh, I've actually met the man once or twice, uh, once read of him, and he's an incredibly pleasant man. Uh, he's a really nice, interesting man and his books are phenomenal and his politics are horrific. <laughs> you know, see, he ran for the Presidency of Peru under uh, a Thatcherite uh, ticket. See, I just don't understand, there's nothing in his books that would make you think that about the man. But anyway, Mario Vargasio an incredible writer, uh, now living in Spain. This is one of his early books, uh, and I read it not long after it came out. But uh, it's, it's quite autobiographical, as I found out years later. I should have guessed, because the main character in it is called Mario uh, Bar-Guitas. Um So basically, it's himself. Uh, and the main story is uh, basically he falls in love with his aunt. Uh, his known biological aunt I hasten to, to tell you um, but he did fall in love with it which in fact Mario Vargas Josa, I discovered years later did and actually married um, his known biological aunt like his aunt's sister actually so it's a bit of love affair to an older woman and a younger man um, and it's it's fantastic um, it's a fantastic book about all that and it's a beautiful not beautiful love story it's a very funny and uh, quite full of love story as I remember but there's a brilliant thing that goes all the way through it and that is Mario Vargitas, the, the, the main character, is a journalist in a radio station. And he, he meets and has to work alongside a character called Pedro Camacho, who writes all the radio soap operas. So this is set. It was written in the 70s, but it was set in the 50s. And radio soaps were huge across the whole world, particularly in the Americas, so particularly in Latin America. And this guy writes... So I've written for soap operas and I've written for radio. So I love this guy. It's a, he's a really major part of the book. And he's this mad little guy. He's a Bolivian guy. And all he does, he he doesn't do anything else in his life at all. He's quite a lonely guy. He just writes and directs and acts in about five different soap operas with about three episodes a day. I mean, it's just masses and masses and masses of words of mad plot line after mad plot line. They're they're always wonderful. They're always kind of just believable enough to be soap, but kind of slightly crazy. And and they're all kind of obsessed with his own obsessions, like, he hates Argentinians. There's a very good reason why he hates Argentinians, but he's pro- <laughs> he tries to promote things he believes in, one of which being self-abuse. So he's just this, this crazy guy who, who just spews out words all the time, and they kind of they kind of colour each stage of Julia and Mario's uh, relationship as they go along with these mad soap operas uh, that, that Pedro Camacho writes. It's, it's great. It's, it's kind of a book, I think. At least that part of the book is a book about writing. What is writing? What's good? What's bad? In you know, the end of the day, uh, the, the, the main character, and I suspect the, the writer as well, Mario Vargas Llosa, is slightly disdainful of the soap opera writer. By the end of it, he's full of complete respect for him. You know, and just amazing fecundity of his imagination, how he just keeps on thinking of more and more storylines. It's very funny. I'd recommend to any of this. One of these books I give to people, actually, is that uh, I think you, you just love this book. It's a uh, funny, sexy, very informative, um, great story. So oh, yeah, I'm Julian the Strip. It's made it a film twice. Both films are terrible. Do not go and see the films. The films that Jeremy Irons is in the last one, honestly, it's appalling. It's one, you one know, of I going to I suspect that you think should be a good movie and never quite makes it as a movie. The way you describe it, you think it would be quite
0: cinematic and, and, and would work, but I suppose that's the, then the skill of the scriptwriter and the, and the director, isn't
1: it? I mean, one of the problems is to try and do what Pedro Camacho does on radio, you know, 45 different plots a day. But, <laughs> with a list of unbelievable characters, half of which he acts himself. But to try and put that onto screen, try, try to realise, because what happens in the book is you actually get the plot. So you, you follow the soap operas as they go along. So you'd have to shoot with seven different films, uh, set in different times with completely different characters. So it'd be incredibly expensive. You'd have to inter- intertwine them all. I think it's one of those things that just the book does better than anything else. I've tried several times to see if I can get a radio. I think this has been a radio adaptation done of it in Britain, but I've never heard it but not for many years, and several things I've tried to see if I could get a chance to, to uh, adapt it. It's never been accepted as an idea, and maybe just as well. I might you one of those projects and totally kill you.
0: you're listening to this Read All About It special podcast with me and Chris we're talking about books about books and my third choice in this is a book called The Book of Lost Things by John Connolly. Again, I think I, I bought it because of the title, to be fair. I, re- I actually read this book about five years ago. I, I wrote that book, Read All About It, which was a, a book about me trying to read more books over the course of the years and this was one of the books that I, I read it's an absolutely brilliant book. It's basically the story of a 12 year old boy who he's struggling to cope. His mum has died and his dad's remarried and he's now got a, a step sister. And so he's kind of struggling to cope with grief, really, and the, the new set of circumstances. The book's set just as the, the Second World War begins as well. So there's that kind of upheaval in terms of the social upheaval in his life. And what he does is he takes refuge in books and in particular myths and fairy tales and ends up his way of of escaping from the difficult circumstances of his life. And as I say, trying to deal with the the grief that he still feels over his mum's death. He disappears into this world of basically the world of his imagination. But what it is, is there's a second World War Two bomber crashes in the back garden when he's out one night and he just manages to hide in, in the sort of cracks in a wall in the garden and suddenly he finds himself in this new world where he has to find the king who has this book of lost things and it's only the king who's able to return him to his real world and in the course of the book he meets various what would be traditional fairy tale characters you know Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs but John Connolly has distorted them so the Seven Dwarfs and Snow White they're disturbing and grotesque and it kind of turns all these what we would know as traditional fairy tales on their head and although the character is a 12 year old boy it's certainly a, it's a it's not a, not really a book for children because some of it's quite brutal and violent and say some of it is dealing with you know how maybe children would deal with grief but also how books can fire your imagination you can escape into them but what can happen when your dreams or your imagination maybe takes them off in not so positive strands and and that's how when he's in this world and, and he meets you know Snow White or you know Rumpelstiltskin or various other traditional fairy tales and it's it's kind of twisted in a way but it's it's a it's a really brilliant book captivating book about you know that power of books and to fire an imagination how people can escape into it and it can be a help or I suppose sometimes a hindrance really.
1: It sounds uh, it sounds very different from uh, I haven't read that many of Conway's he's uh, one of these writers I want to read more of. I think we're talking about so many books in so little time. I said, Do you know Conway otherwise, said, Paul? Are you a bit of a fan? No, no. I again. I think I just saw the book and I
0: liked the title and thought, and I liked the whole idea of it. And once I started reading it, I thought this is this is absolutely brilliant because you know I think in the there's not really any spoilers in it. So Snow White in the in the book is is obese and she did seven dwarfs who they hate her and they mine for diamonds and they are kind of like. Communists, they call each other comrades, and they they want the boy to try and find a suitor so they can they can pay him to marry Snow White, and it's that sort of thing. And and some of it's quite violent, but no, I hadn't,
1: I I'm not aware of any of these other work to us. I'm trying to look trust my equipment so I don't know I've got one, uh, if they dead thing. Uh, but I think it was being a thriller i admittedly a thriller like more imaginative normal kind of thriller writer, but still. Uh, so that's is different. But it's funny you explaining it. I'm I'm, I'm almost slightly wary of. Certain type of, quite often I'm wrong, and I'm read the book. I quite like it. Um, I've got a bit of a thing about Paulo Coelho. Can't stand Paolo Coelho. Ends <laughs> the man's ever written, and I kind of worry about those cursed kind of magic. I'm not. I'm not very good at fantasy and stuff. But that sounds like a kind of book I actually quite like. I, mean, I do like mystic not mystic I do like kind of made up worlds that people go into. So for instance, I like I like uh, I mean I like all the Harry Potter books, and I like uh, who's called uh, Philip? His name. His Dark Materials, um, and all of that. Coleman. Philip Coleman. Uh, yeah. It sounds sound more like that. So I just think something I would enjoy, and the whole thing about fairy tales—I'm going to talk about in a minute. My next book sounds very similar in a number of ways to have gone on the book Well, do you know,
0: it's funny because I think you know that way. Sometimes you're reading a book, and obviously, that you kind of have to suspend your belief because he's in this fantasy world, and in the real world, he's escaped from the difficulties that he's having, and he's fairy tale world, and then obviously in his dreams, as what hap- you know, often happens in people's dreams, it, there's a distorted version, so the reality is probably he's just sleeping, or it's not actually a fantasy world, but the fantasy world becomes so real that it actually it's quite gripping.
1: I think what, well, I don't even think it's that that, that bothers me, I, I think if it's just, you know, either if it's just straightforward fantasy stuff, you know, I've, I've never quite got the Game of Thrones thing, I've never really wanted to read those books, um, I read Tolkien when I was younger and quite liked it, but I've never been a big fan of that kind of fiction. I suppose, but all that stuff, I don't mind, is fine, you know, and if I gave him well, books spell in my hand, i will probably quite enjoy it. I think I'd probably quite enjoy that too. I think, I suppose, what I don't like is when people enter into slightly mystical worlds like, like Coelius so I'm going to bang on about Coel, you know, and pretend to have some kind of insight and have some lesson to tell you. I mean, honestly, the amount of people I've had arguments with about The Alchemist, and they've got oh, such a beautiful book, and they said, so yeah, so what did it tell you? Uh, what, what is it that's supposed to be so beautiful in <laughs> this book? Because I never understood it. You know, I don't know oh, what it's all that about. Whereas that kind of story about you know uh, going into strange worlds when you're sleeping and kind of yeah, all that kind of appeals to me. But I do have a slight kind of oh, it's got a bit of fantasy in it. I'm not sure if it's, if it's for me. It's probably a bit of a prejudice.
0: You did say that your next book is maybe yeah. <laughs> like in some way which is the Bloody Chamber by Angela Carter. Yeah, so I haven't said all
1: that. I'm now going to depend the exact opposite of it, now, cause it is exactly that. Angela Carter, a brilliant writer. And I think this is the first book of hers I've ever read, uh, written in late, late 70s, early 80s. And basically she takes uh, fairy tales and she rewrites them. By God, did she rewrite I would say they're almost unrecognisable. In fact, it's not true, first of all, because she actually calls them quite often, Bluebeard or Werewolf or uh, Lord of Riding Hood or whatever. So you actually recognize Beauty and the Beast, is two versions of that. But she takes them and she just does something entirely new and different with them. So Bluebeard is, is, a, is kind of like someone with the Marquis de Sade, or is a little like the Marquis de Sade. There's a Little Red Riding Hood, which is quite a kind of a, a, an art, a weird, kind of strange movie. There's another one that has our defeat the wolf, so it's a Little Red Riding Hood that actually has the upper hand in the end. It's funny, about this, no, it'll be, it'll be much later, actually, because I read it. I didn't need it when it came out. I read it. I've, I've no idea when I read it. I'm going to guess some point in the 80s, uh, maybe later. But my kids are wee... I've also got, uh, what's that, a Roald Dahl book, uh, Revolting Rhymes. Roald Dahl does the same thing. He takes old fairy tales and he gets a modern spin in, in poetry form. The only a I remember from at the used, used to love it was at the very end of Little Red Riding Hood, the wolf is just about to, to eat Little Red Riding Hood. And the line is something like, the little girl smiles and her eyelids flicker. She whips a pistol from her knickers and then kills a the wolf dead. <laughs> it's kind of like, we read it to small kids, it's kind of like a woo moment. And th- in a very simple way that he's doing that, she's doing something much, much, much darker. Angela Carr's because is, again, pretty dark, uh, along with the I know, lights of gas, see there. It's pretty full on a whole number of ways. You wouldn't want to give it to your granny for Christmas. It's uh, it's very explicit, very scary, very modern. But she's taken the idea of fairy tales, and they're still kind of cautionary tales, but she's kind of turned them on her head, because... The originals were kind of telling people their place and what they should and shouldn't do. And so the cutter should remain a woodcutter and you don't, kings should be kings and uh, peasants should be peasants and she kind of turns all that in her head and particularly women and uh, the females in the stories she, she she has them either really defeated and shows how cruel their worlds were um, or she has them have the upper hand in the end. But they're brilliant. I mean they're really, they're, they're real dark fantasies um, and she's such a good writer but they just so well written. I have to
0: confess, I've never read any of Angela Carter, so again, it's something. But back to you, touched on it earlier on about what's good about this. Uh, these chats is that we both end up giving each other book recommendations, so that for yeah. me is, is something I need to I need to start reading some Angela Carter.
1: It's good. It's a good places to start because they're short stories. Uh, I know I, I love them all. Actually, a lot more than a few are really. I'm pretty sure there's two versions of The Beauty and the Beast, and one of them is just a fantastic one. I always use it as a as a exercise for adaptation because it, it, it does adapt so well. I think most of these have been adapted. I think if you look on YouTube, you actually find that most of the Angela Carter bloody chamber stories have been adapted in one form or another. They all are very kind of cinematic and all very visual. So, yeah, I think I think you like it all.
0: Well, we're on to my fourth book, and this is a book called The Last Bookstore in America by Amy Stewart. And kind of touches on some of the themes from the earlier book, Mr Penumbra's 24-hour bookshop, but this is all about... You know the future of books and, and bookstores at the time, particularly with the threat of e-books. First, the thing I love about this book is it's only available as an e-book and I think that's deliberate, it was put, put out I thought that was quite, it was almost kind of like a joke, but basically the story is, there's been this digital device called a gizmo that's been invented, it's kind of revolutionised reading in the publishing industry and it's basically led to this, the catastrophic demise of books in America, so bookstores are just closing right, left and centre and this bookshop called The Fire Breathing Dragon which is based in a, in a wee town in Eureka in California, which is where Amy Stewart is from and runs a bookstore, incidentally. It is one of the last bookstores in, in America. Real life. And, what's that?
1: In Real Life, so the author actually, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Amy Stewart. Yes.
0: The two main characters in the book, they inherit this a bookstore from i think it's the the guy's his uncle had been running it he didn't realize and then suddenly gets notification that he's inherited this bookstore so they move to eureka uh, at a time when bookstores are closing down and discover you know this this bookstore and, and also discover the secret of, of why it is thriving which is the kind of the crux of the book but the book store itself it attracts all this attention from media and etc because In the face of, you know, the inevitability of the end of books and bookstores, this one bookshop is continuing to thrive. And it is, it's very entertaining, but it is, again, it's also a book that makes you think about the value of bookstores. And you kind of touched on it there about, you know, in this particular lockdown that people are, you know, How are they getting hold of their books? Are they having to order them online? Are they ordering them online from bookstores or is it from Amazon? And, and how, how is that going to impact on booksellers yep. once this is all over? And even if people are wanting to read more books, they still have to have access to those books as well. So kind of takes that kind of idea of the threat of e books to physical books to the extreme in a very entertaining way. I wonder,
1: it says also a great marketing idea. I wonder, if then,
0: how old is it? When did you read it, Paul? I'm not sure, I, I read it about, I reckon I read it about three or four years ago anyway, so it's not, because I'm sure if you if you look back at various newspapers, at a time when Kindles, etc, were just, you know, there was an explosion of them, then I'm sure it was written way back, I'm going to try and check quickly for that, but um, 2000,
1: old. so nine years it was written. There's now a physical book as well, because it's been quite successful. It's maybe, you know, you wonder for that. that would be quite an interesting way around when the people who, who do the e-books first and then they become um, physical books afterwards. But uh, I know a number of writers. Uh, I know you put had uh, e-books out. But I know a number of people that not even, don't even necessarily have the printed version that you do. Lots and lots of people do. But people uh, who write only for online, basically only for download and make a lot of money apart from, there's a couple of scottish writers do it uh, there's a number of thriller writers in the states and places do it there's probably lots of people just the ones i happen to come across and that's quite interesting i mean again like you i like the book itself too much but you know from a point of view of people others like who you know, like the actual uh, the, the job of writing uh, it's interesting how there are different variations how people can run a career as a writer or partial career as a writer. i suppose that would be the
0: if you're a writer that's the, the conundrum of you know you might like to see a book in print and then holding a physical copy but if someone then says listen you can have that or you can have like, a million downloads that's a real conundrum
1: for people yeah and the conundrum of course is how you, you know how, how much are you paid for all this by and large downloads don't tend to uh, do much less um, profit per per unit because so you know, they're always a lot cheaper and the writer and the tends to get less so again if you're doing your own publishing as it were again it's the world I don't know you know more about it than I do But it's certainly interesting. Uh, And if it's true that e books are kind of coming down in sales uh, and the book itself has made a comeback, then I wonder if it doesn't mean that those writers who kicked off their careers or made a name for themselves online are now actually going to have to go the other direction and uh, get their books published physically. I
0: think you have to embrace both or, or all variations even if for no other reason you don't want to exclude anyone because if somebody has rediscovered that love of reading through their kindle and that's how they they like reading it and they continue to read it then you have to i think you have to meet people halfway
1: yeah i mean i know i know people prefer kindle i had this conversation relatively recently people who say i mean really bookish people people read a lot say honestly honestly they prefer kindles or or, you know whatever reading off the screen they just do so there are some, I think it's few and far between, but there are some who just actually like And they, they say they like the feel of it, like the whole thing. And I can kind of slightly feel, you know, I've got a wee leather cupper for mine. Can, you can make it slightly book-like. I kind of understand what they mean. For me, it doesn't quite work. Yeah. So this is a person My actually somebody's older than me, you know, and she's very, very bookish. And she a no since she discovered the Kindle, I don't know, eight, nine years ago, and she absolutely loves it. You know? And she still reads physical books, but, you know, all the other way around from us, only if she has to.
0: We're going to be discussing this again when it comes to my last book choice, but we're on to your fifth and final book, and that is a book called
1: The Library of Babel by george Luis Borges. I love his name. Uh, it sounds even better in Spanish. Jorge Luis Borges or Jorge Borges. It sounds like a <laughs> It's funny, I kind of thought, as when we first decided to, to do this theme, it was the first book that came to mind, because it's very, very much about books. It's actually a long, long short story about books. It's funny, you know, he's, he's probably seen as being one of the greatest Spanish language writers, you know. There's Cervantes have talked about lot and uh, Gabriel Garcia marquez and Lorca, and all that, but uh, without a doubt, uh, Borges is right up there. And he's, he's, he is a completely extraordinary, he's written zillions. This book's from 1941. To be honest, I'm not entirely sure I've liked anything the man's ever written. <laughs> I'm not sure I like him. But Evany writes he he's he's obsessed with extreme ideas. He's an absolute intellectual, and one of my problems is a lot of time I'm not quite getting what he's what he's what he's doing. A lot of his, his books and short stories and his essays are about philosophical games and riddles. To understand them, I think you have to know mathematics and ancient philosophers. He's very into the occult and all that. So they're all quite weird. Also, the guy himself is an old reactionary, so the opposite from Green earlier on. But this is this is a the library people just weird weird book. Uh, which has been filmed a couple of times and I'm going to be using in, in uh, adaptation I'm just going to try and see how you can put it, make it physical but it's about a library which has every book that could ever be written that ever has been and ever could be written but not in the format we know them none of the books are written in any language that anybody understands so it's just an endless endless nobody can ever get out there's, there's such a huge library it goes on literally forever each room leads another room, leads another room, leads another room, leads another, another room. Endlessly, endlessly, endlessly amounts of books. All the books are the same shape and size. As I remember, they've all got the same number of pages.
0: I read it, I think it said it's every 410-page book in a kind of certain format.
1: Said, exactly, that's right. That's right, they've all got the same amount of, a bit of pages. But uh, And it's all like gobbledygook. And there's all these librarians, or, and there's one in particular who, who I, don't, I don't think he's ever named, uh, but the kind of guy who takes us through our guide, our kind of... Uh, or Dante's Beatrice kind of, uh, is a librarian in the, the library who's desperately trying to read all these books even though none of them are readable or mean anything. And meanwhile, there's other kind of forces within the library. Um, there's people trying to organise things in a different way, but there's, the, the bad ones are, to bring us right back to five 451, the purifiers who think that actually the best thing you could do and to get the sort of final library is nothingness and what you got to do is destroy every book. So it's just this mad, mad story, um, which, admittedly, I remember being absolutely fascinated by it. I think it was one of those texts I did have to read for university, but I, I, was, I was kind of quite smitten by it. It's just, it's just such a weird, weird story. But I think it's, it's also something that I remember, one of my main images of it is in this library, all these rooms, which are all the same shape and the same size, they're all really high. And everywhere, apart from all they have in each of the, the, the rooms is books and mirrors. So the librarian, and the one that we go with particularly, is always looking at himself. So it's just kind of strange how the books and what I kind of, what I think I took from it, whether it's what you're supposed to take from or not, I don't know. But what I took from it was kind of the complete pointlessness of reading. There's no real point in this and that's when reading's at its best. You know, if you're reading something because you think it's going to be uh, good for you, if you read something because you think it's going to improve you, if you read a book because you feel as if you ought to, you never enjoy that reading. You know, you really just enjoy books because they're there and because you happen to pick it up and you get lost in it. So it's one of the strangest books ever made about reading and libraries and books. Do you know what it reminded me when you were
0: talking there, what it reminded me of? I remember seeing a thing, it might have just been a news report, and it was all to do with the the British Library and their archive. Because I think since, since about the middle of the 17th century, every publisher, every book that's published in the UK, they have to... I think it's called a legal deposit. I think every publication, not just books, but they have to give a copy to the British Library. That's right, yeah. And they have miles and miles below ground, down. I think it's down in London, their base, of every book that's been published in the UK for the last 300, over 300 years. And just, you know, the rate at which books are being published, you know, they're still, they're filling up these shelves faster than they anticipated. But just this endless, endless supply of books it's just there, but it'll never be sourced. Nobody's ever going to take go down, and very few people, I'd imagine, take any of these books out. They just they're there. They just gather in the dust. Or I think the the rooms are the, these big, vast shelves are obviously air conditioned in a way to protect the books. But it's just another never-ending expansion of this collection of the written word.
1: It's exactly that, isn't it? And it gives us some impression kind of an if expanding underground world, that eventually the, the, the overground world will, 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 will collapse because there's so many books under us. Um, it's an amazing idea, isn't it? They probably started that idea 300 years ago whenever I think, oh, that's all right. Get a decent-sized room, I'll <laughs> we'll be fine. But then now with the technology and everything else and the ease of selling books, so yeah, I mean, how the hell do they manage to do that? I mean, I remember when I was working in the Herald and you had the same view there, and if I worked as an employee of the Herald and then was doing book reviews for them, you used to go into their, uh, their cupboard, and every single day, every single day, and that's just what the Herald had, I would say that there would be about... Three hundred books every single day, you know, and you had to go through all these books to try and find the book you wanted to review. And it was just unbelievable, you know? and it's probably even more now. So yeah, yeah, and, and that's kind of old what, what Borges is kind of one about, you is you know, this idea of this kind of endless books and well, what the hell do you do? With them all? Well, do you know it's funny? The other thing I I remember
0: again, I don't know where I stumbled upon this because I just took a note of it at the time and a guy called thomas young who was an 18th century polymath and i think he was the last man ever in the history of the world to have who have been able to declare that he had read every book ever published <laughs> brilliant
1: i i wouldn't believe him
0: anyway <laughs> no no i'm, I'm sure I'm, I'm sure he wouldn't have I've managed to get everything Well, we're on to the very last book in this podcast and i decided to choose a non-fiction book and I, i've mentioned this book before a couple of times and it's a book called The Secret Life of Books, Why They Mean More Than Words by Tom Mole. And he's a professor of English literature and book history at the University of of Edinburgh. Basically the book looks at books as objects and why they're more than just the words contained within the pages. So in the course of this he looks at how books have become part of our identity or in terms of the relationships that we have with people in our lives, whether it's parents, siblings, partners, children, how we give them as gifts, and what that tells us about us and about them, how our attitude towards lending books or coming together to to discuss books, and then how, again, how books can, you know, your reading journey, which I suppose is what I've been kind of doing with this podcast of your literary life, how books can sometimes tell a bit about you, either about your life or who you are, or Books relate to a certain specific period in your life, or they can trigger memories from when you read them. And then he also goes in, you know, that's on the personal side of it, but then he looks at it how society and cultures and nations look at books and, and how a book can become part of a country's cultural identity. You know, and, and we were just talking about the British Library, of, of how through history there's been great libraries you know, some of which have been destroyed when lots of, you know, books have been destroyed. And sometimes that's been by accident. Sometimes it's been by design because that idea of, and again, going back to Farm Hype 451, it's the idea of if you burn books, you, you're burning ideas, you're burning culture. You know, Nazi Germany was the, the perfect example of that. And But then also looking at how books can be, a, a, you know, a symbol of faith, for example. And for me, it's a real celebration of the book as a physical product. And it does touch on the whole ebook you can actually buy the book on kindle as well but it's his whole point is why the physical book is so much better and not just the experience of reading the book but everything that it brings to the table you know so you read a book and you you want to recommend it so you get you give me the physical book so that's a that's something that's passed between us it's a, it's a link it's it's a shared experience not just you saying i've read this book on kindle you can read it in Everything about this, about books and celebrating books and what they mean and what they are, is, is contained in this book. And it's it's quite a short book, but it's really beautifully written.
1: Sounds great, actually. Uh, I think that's right. All that stuff about you know your, your public life, your, your national life. I, mean, I think it's quite interesting. You know, the stories we tell ourselves for true of all culture, but I think it's a very true. I think the Scottish books and Scottish writing, you know, it's it's very distinctive. I think from English or Irish or Welsh or anywhere else for that matter. I think there are certain things, I'm, I'm not sure like to try and write them all down, but I think there are certain things we just recognise almost immediately as being kind from of the Scottish. And even though they're very different parts of, of Scotland, like modern books, from urban books like Trainspotting to Neil Gunn from the North or whatever, there's still some things, I think, about ordinary people, or whatever. So the stories we tell ourselves, and I find that quite a lot of the Spanish literature as well, the stories they tell themselves are, are very it's, it's stupid, but they're very Spanish. But they are. So yeah, I think that's right. The thing about the 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 gift book, by the way, I got one just recently. I was given a gift that I didn't know, to somebody. I just I just put on my Kindle one day, and uh, an offer of a download was there, which I hadn't ordered. But weird, there's a book that really interested me, and I thought I couldn't figure it out. Uh, it didn't it didn't cost me any money, so I just downloaded it. And it wasn't until about a few days later that I found out it was a friend in Spain uh, who thought I would enjoy this book, and so just sent it by Kindle. In the one sense, it was actually really surprising and really different. I've never been gifted a book electronically before. Because she hadn't told me beforehand, it was it was really nice, actually. It was slightly weird. And I liked it, but you can't sign an electronic book. And it will come, somehow, even though the words are all there, you never really feel as if you have the book. It's about to listening to music and download. Certainly for my generation, if I like the song enough or I like the album enough, I'm going to go and buy it in one form or another. Even though the technology for all that is going all the time, I still find that just you know downloading is not enough. So, yeah, I think again, to come back to the way where we started off, something about that physical book seems to me to be important. You know, Anna could have signed that book, and if you know, it hadn't been for Covid and it hadn't been for postal delays, no, that she probably would have. So, yeah, there's it's just such a big difference between the two formats.
0: I also read a, a book in Kendall recently, and I've I've been working my way through War and Peace, but what I've been doing is I've just been reading some. Th- I've been reading that during the day, and I've been reading other things at night. Books of short stories, essays, and it was a, a crime book by a girl called Lisa Gray, who used to be a sports writer in Scotland, and she's written two. I think she's written two in a series so far of of crime books with this kind of private investigator. The books are set in America really great character and the reason I got it is because it was it was like a special offer on Kindle and I thought right I'll just I'll get it and see what, what it's all about and it was actually it was a great read it was a really good crime book it was just something a wee bit different but also just reading it on the Kindle if the book had been available maybe in bookshops I'd have probably gone and bought the physical product but um, I just decided to get the e-book and still enjoyed reading it.
1: Of course, I mean yeah I would have said it all on right, you know uh, for Courses and some books you only get in Kindle and all that so it's another format I do it and I do it actually I think I've seen Ella that, you know, this friend of mine actually prefers them. In some ways, I kind of like every fourth or fifth book of mine to be in Kindle or, or in electronic form, just for, just for the change, you know, uh, just for to hold someone else to, to have a slightly different relationship with the books. I, I kind of like doing it. So every now and then I will. I'm, well, of course, it's cheaper to download them. Uh, so I've actually downloaded a few books over the last few weeks. I haven't actually to read them yet. But, uh, but having books on, on, in an electronic way, it's just another way of doing it, isn't it? And I suppose I've, I have a very low boredom threshold, so I've read the, a physical book four times in a row than when do we change although I think you and I are both we are both
0: fans of the physical product of course otherwise known as old wise I think the word is right. <laughs> thanks for listening to the read all about it podcast and I'd love to hear what you thought about it you can get in touch via twitter at read all about 20 on instagram at read all about it podcast or you can send an email to read all about it at paulcuddehy.com If you've enjoyed the podcast, subscribe, leave a review and spread the word. If you haven't enjoyed it, say nothing to anybody. But I do hope you can join me, Paul Cuddy, next time
1: on the Read All About It podcast. And in the meantime, keep reading.